This is Democracy in Lockdown, a weekly virtual conversation on the latest news about the coronavirus crisis and what it means for our democracy. This podcast is presented by Unlock Democracy. We campaign for a better democracy and a new written constitution built and owned by the people. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Democracy in Lockdown. Just a quick note before we get started on this week's episode, the audio is not as good this week as we would like it to be. We're sorry about that. We've had problems with our internet connections, which is unfortunately, I really encourage you to stick with it because we've got some really interesting insights from Trudy, who used to work in the hospitality sector, has some great insights about what's going on with those workers in these times. My name is Sam Coates and I'm the Campaigns Officer at Unlock Democracy. I've also got today with me Trudy. How are you doing, Trudy? Yeah, I'm really good. Um, it's all become very normal now, sitting at home and speaking to you like this. Kind of a little bit apprehensive about the new messaging from the government. Staying alert. I don't exactly know what that means. Uh, how, how have you felt about the recent lockdown easing or proposed lockdown easing? I'm pretty worried about it, Trudy, to be honest, because obviously I'm in Wales and we're one of the countries that has stuck with the previous advice and it's going to be a bit of a mess, really, because we've got the weak weed media in Wales, so lots of people aren't going to be aware of the changes that's going to cause friction, but also lots of people on in England are suddenly going to think that it's fine just to come in and overwhelm rural health services if they bring the virus with them. Yeah, I don't understand why this has been announced at, at this stage from a public health point of view, so quite worried about it, to be honest with you. You think you'll have many people crossing the border this weekend? We've already seen increases in that and the stories of people messaging Airbnb saying, hey, you're not open yet, but we're coming on Wednesday because <laughs> everything's fine on Wednesday, you know, this sort of stuff. So yeah, there's been lots of quite tongue-in-cheek discussions about policing the border. Definitely. feel the same way. Obviously, I live in London at the minute, uh, so mine's more about overcrowding of of public spaces, uh, not being able to go to my nice local area because everybody's come in to to walk around that. But yeah, definitely feeling a little bit confused at the minute. Yeah, and the polling has shown that people are not really very clear about what the new advice means, whereas people understood what stay home meant. So last week we talked about how the media has reported the pandemic, what they've been focusing on and why, and why some stories have been neglected. So this week we're looking at a key gap we've seen in the media coverage, the experiences of workers during lockdown, whether government support has been enough. So stay with us. We're recording this on Tuesday the 12th of May. We have just seen the furlough statement from Rishi Sunak announcing that it will be extended until October with no significant changes until July. The coronavirus lockdown easing plan is due to come into effect tomorrow, Wednesday the 13th, with a new slogan to stay alert for the country. The unions are not backing these measures at this time, with IWGB taking the government to court. On the 8th of May, the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain 
and two Uber drivers have filed a legal challenge against the UK government with the High Court over its failure to provide satisfactory income and sickness protection to millions of low-paid and self-employed workers during the pandemic. And in slightly more worrying news, it's Randox Labs, who Conservative politician Owen Patterson, as a paid consultant for, have been offered 133 million pounds in testing contracts for coronavirus tests. The contract was awarded without the need to ask other firms to bid for them. So Sam, how do you feel about that? Well, the testing contract's pretty worrying stuff, isn't it? Um, Suspending competitive tendering raises lots of questions about conflict of interest within the government. And, you know, um, I'm quite concerned about whether this stuff will become more normal um, afterwards because, you know, there's no clear-cut end to lockdown, even though we've seen this easing in England tomorrow. I, yeah, I'm quite concerned that this sort of stuff could become quite normal. I think that it's really interesting about the changes to the furlough scheme. We were hearing until this afternoon that it might be cut to 60% of wages being covered by the government instead of 80%. And one thing I think that shows is that the unions were probably flexing their muscles about this because as, you know, they're in a position to say to their members, we're calling us a general strike, for example, if you're not going to if you're going to try and starve us into work and legal questions aside there's a lot of workers that don't really want to go into dangerous workplaces so they have a lot of leverage there absolutely so let's kick off So we, before we go into the background of the furlough scheme and employment law and onto the statement we've received from a worker themselves, it's good to talk about some international comparisons like we have done before. Uh, it's good to put it in context of what some other countries are doing. Countries like France and Germany, they already had a furlough type scheme in place where employers pay 70% of the salary for up to 12 months and the government reimbursed a percentage of that. So it was possibly a lot easier for them to expand them to make them a little bit more robust for for the current crisis. So in France, this has been expanded to state that employers should pay affected employees of an allowance at least equal to 70% of their previous gross remuneration, which means like 84% of their previous net salary. Uh, the French government covers 100% of the remuneration paid to the employers as part of this scheme, up to a cap of 6,925 euros a month. And the employer must cover any balance in that. In Mexico, for example, the federal government allows loans for entrepreneurs and small businesses of up to 25,000 pesos to be paid in a period of three years. It's important to note that according to the Mexican Institute for Competitiveness, these small businesses employ over 69% of workers. However, more economic packages depend on each federal state and the implementation varies across Mexico. In Ireland, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic unemployment payment was set up for anybody who had lost their job or was laid off due to COVID. They receive a flat rate of €350 per week and you can claim it on top of other benefits like the carer's allowance, for example. It's worth it to state that this is below the minimum wage, which sits at around €382 per week. They do also have a temporary wage subsidy scheme, which is similar to our furlough scheme, and it's based on a net weekly pay. So this varies a lot more than the base rate of 80% that we do here. Uh, This varies between 85% and 60% with some more stipulations on how the employer should top up the wages. 
in Denmark. They offer a furlough scheme of 75% for salaried workers and 90% for workers paid by the hour. The employee must receive 100% salary during the period, and this is point of law, and the remainder must be paid by the employer up to 4,018 euro and initially for three months. So Trudy's given us a kind of summary of what the job support schemes have been like across the world and we're going to spend a minute just going into the details of the economic support measures the UK government has brought in since the start of the crisis. So as March into April and the lockdown was announced, the government announced that they'd be covering 80% of workers' salaries. And that takes a very broad definition where a lot of businesses can access it. But crucially, unlike some other countries, it's optional whether the employer tops up that additional 20%. That scheme was meant to only run for a couple of months initially, but it's now been extended a couple of times. Help for the self-employed has come a bit more slowly, but there's still quite a lot of gaps in the system and a system of loans only for other uh, situations. Crucially, it's worth mentioning that people that have already lost their jobs as the result of the crisis or people that were made redundant by their employers rather than being furloughed have the same system of universal credit. So there's been a lot of talk of cutting this subsidy to 60% in the, the coming weeks as a way of encouraging people back to work, so to speak. Cutting the subsidy to 60% would have forced many people back into work, whether they felt safe to do so or not. So there's been a lot of talk in the past few days about something called Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act of 1996. And according to the United Voices of the World Trade Union, this provides employees with the right not to suffer a detriment or to be dismissed for refusing to work in circumstances where they believe they would be in a serious and imminent danger by going into work. It provides employees with the right to withdraw from or to refuse to return to a workplace that is unsafe. So it's pretty interesting that there's been so much talk of people refusing to turn up to work when the government is saying that it's now something you should do as lockdown is eased in England. Yeah, definitely, Sam. And do you think that unions will be able to hold employers to that? Or is it more or less untested grounds for now? I'm obviously not an expert on, on, on that law, but it obviously depends on how many individual workers are aware of this law and you know there's lots of people that have been encouraging people to join unions but so there's two issues here really i think the i think the unions have probably had a really big say in stopping the furlough scheme from being cut to 60 percent but i think it's going to be a little bit more difficult to enforce the social distancing regulations certainly in england where there's no legal protection for this and then, as we know many people have been going to work throughout all of this with no real social distancing taking place. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested to see in the coming months how this pans out and whether people are actually able to hold the government to account over it. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that there's an unprecedented role for trade unions here in keeping people safe when the government doesn't seem to be following a public safety message that is in line with the very high rate of infection and deaths that we still have here in the UK. So one key point of the new furlough scheme that's been extended until October is that employers are going to have to pay in more for the scheme to function. And I'm not an economist by any means, but this could have an impact on the viability of some businesses and whether some people are just fired rather than kept on because of the narrow margins that some companies um, are running on. So that's definitely something to keep eye on whether that change leads to more people being made redundant. If you like this podcast, click the subscribe button and follow us on social media.
So we have reached out to some colleagues uh, to put this in context. I used to work in hospitality as a manager, uh, so I have a lot of contacts in the hospitality sector, uh, people that I talk to quite often about working conditions. The hospitality sector has a notoriously precarious workforce with many employees on zero-hour contracts. So I reached out to some people to ask for their experiences from what their employers have done for them, what information they've received, and any experiences they had in accessing uh, the welfare system that we have. So I'm going to read out a statement from an old colleague of mine who works part-time as a painter and decorator and part-time in uh, behind the bar of a football club on match days, who has said that both those incomes have been directly affected and at points brought to a complete standstill. They say, I ended up applying for JSA and the DWP sent me a text a few days later asking me to come for an interview in Harlow, Essex. I live in Battersea, and by this time the UK had entered into lockdown, so there was no way I could travel to Essex, even if I wanted to, never mind how much the train ticket would have cost me, so I cancelled the appointment. And I find the process of applying for universal credit ridiculous. I live with my boyfriend, so we should make a joint claim. I've never relied on my boyfriend financially, and nor vice versa. My boyfriend is a freelancer, so his income is just as fragile as mine. In the end, I gave up on universal credit as I'm not listed on the tenancy, and I didn't want to cause problems with the landlord by suddenly trying to get myself listed in such chaotic times. They go on to say, I had two very different experiences from my employers during this time. The football club were brilliant and kept communicating with us the whole time. Before the furlough situation came to light, they were trying to get all the holiday pay they could to us and promised to keep us all employed if we wanted to. This is a huge reflection on the ethics of the club. They paid us all the in living wage, but sadly, I feel it's been very rare in this time. Plenty of my friends and myself have had disheartening experience with employers. They go on to say, my painting job is a completely different story. It's a really small business consisting of just my boss and myself. At the beginning of the crisis, I understood whenever he let me go. Work was thin on the ground and he has a family to feed. Eventually he called me up and asked me if I wanted him to take me back on so I could receive furlough money on his accountant's advice. Long story short, I started the process and every time we spoke on the phone about my details, my boss would boast about how I should be so grateful that he's sorting this out for me as there is no legal requirement. I tried to laugh it off to myself, but this attitude was the same one being held by so many bosses and corporations across the UK and was being supported by the government. I feel that everything about the furlough scheme has enabled bosses to strip workers of any control or dignity. We are held hostage to the good nature of our bosses, signing us up to the scheme to earn a percentage of an already low wage that's not even provided by them personally. I think that's a really accurate reflection on what I've seen from my colleagues in the hospitality industry. A lot of sense of they should be grateful that their employers even keeping them on, completely reliant on the, the kindness of their bosses. Yeah, that's just an astonishing story, isn't it? I've got some friends who have were switching jobs when lockdown happened and were able to get furthered by a previous employer. So they're doing okay, for example, but this is just a part of a big picture where so much of the power in this situation is in the hands of your employer and it's really down to 
whether they're a good person or whether they're not interested in you, which is just incredible that the government is putting people in this position in this really un unequal power relationship, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's worth it to note as well. There are, especially in the hospitality industry, a lot of employers who are directors, so they're directly involved in employing uh, their staff at all levels. Uh, there are smaller businesses as well, and they tend to get a salary from their own company, for example. So you'd see where the companies had uh, an interest to gain the furlough money, where that was happening, and where that wasn't happening, uh, there was less of an interest, let's say. Right, yeah. So it's so interesting how these systems are designed in terms of how it impacts the workers, isn't it? So we've talked a bit about hospitality workers, and that's kind of the only clear-cut example of where if the scheme is operating properly, people should be furloughed. But Something that's kind of being lost in a lot of the media discussion about lockdown, for example, is that as opposed to most of us being sat at home baking sourdough, which is the vision you sometimes get from reading the newspapers, up to half of the workforce has been going to work as usual. And that's a lot more than just NHS workers, more than waste collectors. This is huge numbers of people in non-essential parts of the economy, like call centers, for example. And that's because whether you're defined as an essential worker is basically your boss's decision. And people have been forced to come in because there's no option about taking furlough money. It's your boss's decision. And if they're saying you have to come to work, then there's not an awful lot you can do about that. It's worth adding as well that whilst in Wales and Scotland, there is new legislation enforcing social distancing in workplaces. There's nothing to enforce that in England, which means that employers can basically get away with forcing people to come to work in unsafe conditions to do non-essential work. Our friends at Open Democracy did a, an investigation recently where call centre workers had been polled on how they were faring at work. And they found that 52% of call centre workers that were asked had been forced to stay in work. And many of them were doing low value work in terms of it's not generating a lot of profit for the company. And there was no social distancing going on, despite most of the workers thinking that their work was not essential at all. So, Trudy, you were, we've been talking about how there's been a big, at least in terms of narrative, on lockdown in England happening on Wednesday tomorrow when we're recording this. And this, this strikes me as being a really, really dangerous situation because whereas earlier today we might have been thinking about it in terms of Boris Johnson has said to people, if you, can, if you can't work from home, then we encourage you to go back to work now. That being coupled with a 60% furlough instead of an 80% furlough was looking like people were being basically forced into to go back to work if they wanted to get any wages. But now we're in this situation where it really feels like people are being forced to negotiate with their employer in a really unequal relationship about who should return to work. So rather than, even though the furlough scheme is still technically in place, many of these people that have been going into work the whole time, they've got no protection, they didn't have any protection before, and now more people who had been furloughed are probably going to be unfurloughed and forced into unsafe workplaces. And this whole, there's this whole emerging narrative of the government trying to pass responsibility onto individuals. Is that something you're seeing and feeling as well, Bob? Yeah, it definitely is, uh, especially as Rishi Sunak announced that people could go back to work part-time. So negotiating that 
further with the employer and then we now have to wait to see what measures they'll bring forward how they'll deliver the part-time furlough part-time working incentive and how the relationship between employers and employees will change because of that and I'm worried we'll still see quite a few redundancies even with the commitment to continue to pay workers 80% of their salaries. Yeah, yeah, lots of uncertainty, passing the role to the, the public in terms of what is the right thing to do and also not the right thing to do as individuals. So yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that not only are we going to see more redundancies as people are forced to choose between going back into work and their safety, that the, the infection rates going to go up as a, as a result of this because of the lack of clarity over the government information. So yeah, not not a huge amount of positive things to say today. (laughs) So what can we conclude from this conversation? It seems to me that although we talk about living in a democracy, there's only certain parts of our lives that are actually run democratically, like who we get to, to vote for. And there's a whole section of our lives we spend at least a third of our waking hours at work on average, but they don't function as democracies at all. And what we're seeing here is that unequal relationship is forcing people into really dangerous situations. People want to keep earning an income and a livelihood, basically. So we should be thinking about whether there's ways that we can make workplaces more democratic. That's something the government could be working on. And countries like Germany, for example, where you've got employees on the boards of corporations is something that maybe we should be looking towards. Definitely. It's such an interesting concept that you would have employee representation in the board of your company. And I think it can only be useful to get that perspective. So what would you like to hear on our next episode? Let us know by leaving your comments on social media and tagging hashtag democracy in lockdown. Stand with us to transform democracy. Join us at our democracy after lockdown events. Follow the link in our description. Thanks for listening. Me and Trudy are going to be taking a break from this next week, so you'll be hearing some fresh voices from the Unlocked Democracy team. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks, Trudy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be coming back next Thursday with more. Remember, you can reach us on social media and tell us what you think we should discuss next week. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share. Stay home, stay safe.